Welcome to Designing Futures, exploring AI, data, architecture, and beyond. In this podcast, we dive deep into the insights, groundbreaking ideas, and innovative approaches shared by our guests. Together, we explore the immense potential of AI for architecture and design, unraveling its remarkable possibilities and acknowledging the challenges it presents. Hi, Emmanuel. Hi, hi, Natalie. Hi, Melanie. We're very pleased to have you on the show with us today. Thanks for taking this time to talk uh, with us about uh, artificial intelligence, architecture and beyond. Uh, yes, we're very, very pleased to have you, Emmanuel. So let me maybe first introduce to you uh, Emmanuel Kaur, you're an assistant professor in both the pillars of architecture and sustainable design, and as well design and artificial intelligence at the Singapore University of Technology and Design. You direct today Artificial Architecture, which is an interdisciplinary research laboratory that focuses on the design and development of deep learning models for artificial creativity, generative architecture, predictive urbanism, and defense intelligence. Ooh, that's going to be very interesting. Lots of topics to, to dwell into. Today, you teach course on the history, theory, and practice of artificial intelligence for critical thinking, artificial and architectural intelligence and design, um, and creative machine learning at SUTD. Um, so again, thank you for being with us. It's really an honor to have someone with such a, uh, an amazing background in the field. Um, I'd like to start maybe with the first question, if you could maybe expand a bit uh, about in your journey of exploring the intersection of artificial intelligence and architecture, what initially sparked your interest in this subject? I think I'm, I've always been interested in, in competition design. I did my um, um, the DRL Design Research uh, Lab and in, at the AA, the Architectural Association in London. So it was really, I was very keen on figuring out, you know, how, how the, the computational process could be really part of the uh, creation process. And to me, it's really a progression, right? AI is, is really a progression of the almost tooling up further beyond the parametric design, beyond rule-based systems. And, and I think um, back then I was fascinated. It was... I think 2015, it was kind of the beginning. Well, at least for me, um, neural style transfer and that sort of thing happening in the computer science world. And you see lots of interesting imagery that seems to suggest uh, potential. Yeah. And so that was, and then I, I thought, oh, this is, this is pretty cool, but it seems to be a completely different different kind of thing. And it's, it's, it, it, I mean, it was deep learning and I was not familiar with exactly what's, what's the, the kind of mechanism, but the result seems very impressive. And yeah, and then I, I move on to go much deeper into that, into that domain. So now that you've been in it for uh, a few years, both uh, exploring it and teaching it, um, I, one of our first questions to you would be, how do you see the AI as a paradigm shift in the field of architecture and design? Uh, what would you say are the fundamental changes that it brings, both in terms of the design process itself and the role of the architect? Right. The, the design process, I think the shift 
the shift in the agency, right? It's just like you have a new tool and then you have, you begin to rethink about this impact on or the augmentation to the existing process, which then lead on to sort of a redefinition or shift in the existing role of the architect. And I think um, fun, fundamental changes would, would be the approach of problem framing and process uh, workflow as well, right? Given the same problem uh, with this particular technology and um, the ways of using them in a very designingly way, what, what does it really mean? So you may then reframe the problem quite differently um, and then begin to lay out the the steps um, to work on the problem, right? The, the, which means there is a change of design process, um, yeah. In in your book of artificial architectural intelligence and design, you introduce this concept of architectural intelligence. Could you maybe explain how you define architectural intelligence and what its significance is with the, within the context of artificial intelligence? Right. Yeah. The the book that I wrote it, it was just to provide some context. It was it was really for the new course that I initiated in, in SUTT, uh, in the university. And back then, well, I started a creative machine learning course, which was, which I mean, I'm still running it. Um, it it's about hands-on, you know, you play with code, you see the results and you try, you work on very small projects and assignment. But then I figured out that there's always this kind of a lack where students couldn't, it's as if they start from, you know, from nothing and there's no history. There's no, there's well, in a way, no baggage, but more like a no history problem than no, not having baggages. And that motivated me to write about it, uh, which then became the second course on AI in architecture school. Um, and that was to provide the minimal, minimal uh, foundation in what we talk about in, in, in terms of intelligent architecture in the history of architecture, like, you know, John Fraser, evolution architecture, and all the way back the Cedric Price, architecture machine, but also to bring, create sort of a breach uh, in the domain of AI. So they, so they should know about the Turing test. They should know about the important figures in, in AI and how it has changed and how it, so you create sort of a parallel timeline to see the, the potential, you know, cross fertilization. Sometimes it happens. Sometimes, it, it, in fact, often it happens much later, <laughs> like decades. And that will provide the necessary uh, foundation. Then uh, that's why I decided to kind of try. Well, I didn't coin the, the term, obviously, or not. And, and probably the the few that use it for a book title. Um, uh, this uh, professor, uh, Molly uh, Wright uh, Stinson, she wrote a book called Architecture Intelligence, but it was it was not really about artificial intelligence in architecture. It, it was more like a, a metaphor to explain the digital the digital landscape for architects and designers. So it, uh, that was kind of useful, but not really useful. And it, it, it occurs to me that if there is this AI, the artificial intelligence, and we have, I mean, we think 
as as architect, we think there are some kind of intelligence, implicit intelligence in there, just that it's not being talked about, it's not being linked to in an artificial way. We always think about it as kind of a human human intelligence. So it, it became a very nice, a very nice term uh, as a springboard to discuss, to give it a name, basically give it a face. Um, and so I, I, you, you know, I tried to define that. So in 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 the book, it uh, it was a comparison. Uh, I I mean, it was written in twenty twenty, uh, quite quite early uh, before before this you know, major emergence in in generative AI and so on and so forth these days, and is to shift the conception of AI from an Asian-centric perspective to a kind of environment-centric um, um, way of thinking, uh, which in, in turn grants uh, architecture as a discipline that basically design environment a certain uh, potential, a certain, if you like, a certain promise that we as designers and architects could in fact contribute to that discussion in AI. And that, that would be fantastic. And, and we have seen important figures um, like uh, Christopher Alexander. He contributed in, object, uh, in OOP, right? Uh, object-oriented programming. And we see this very amazing cross-fertilization. What if this could also happen? Uh, if we begin to think about AI in an architectural, environmental context sense. So con- context is what was really important for me. Um, yeah, so that, that's the key difference, right? Uh, that instead of, if I, if I elaborate further, so instead of typically in AI speak is that at least the, the, the textbook, right? The, the main textbook um, is always about training this agent. Uh, its behavior, and then the environment is always very passive. But conceptually, if you think about it, even for deep, deep neural networks, if you imagine the the, the model is the Asian, is essentially exposed to a context of training set. If you think about conceptually, not just physical environment or or digital environment, uh, it's always this interplay of the environment, the context. Um, and the thing itself. So uh, it's interesting now because suddenly we're talking about the, the, one of the things that we can actually do very well, the, the curation of data set, the certain decision that, that uh, designers could play a part um, in addition to the design of the, the, the agent itself. Uh, yeah. And, and is that something that, for example, in your experience of teaching it, um, is that something that you ask if, uh, you ask every student to define what is our architectural intelligence for them? What how did they find the do they define the context in which they will elaborate their their tools, or or is that for you a common knowledge in architecture that is uh, generic? Well, the, I, I well I didn't explicitly ask the student to define it in, in during the course uh, uh, when they're doing the module. Um, I made them read, right? So they have to, so we have the seminars and all that reading seminars. And at the end is for them to formulate what do you think is architectural intelligence. You are completely free to disagree with me. Um, 
or agree mm-hmm. with me, that would be fantastic. Or question, even you know, question <laughs> my own assumption, definition that which would broaden the whole uh, potential for define this uh, architecture intelligence. But to, to me, it's, the flip part is necessary. The Asian and environment part is, is necessary. So Emmanuel, I mean, it seems today that not so many uh, architects in this world are teaching AI in the courses. And we're quite intrigued to see, I mean, as one of, 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 of the major probably uh, professor in that, how do you introduce and integrate today AI into the curriculum? How do you, how do you, yeah, are you just teaching architecture students themselves? Are you teaching other tech students? Are you mixing them up? How, how does it function and work in terms of setting up all that? Right. So the, the, the two courses, in fact, there are three courses. Uh, one is the creative machine learning, which is an elective. And the plan is that next year or the year after it will become a core um, because we see that it's very important. And the other one, which is the, the theory, the book, right? Uh, the architecture intelligence, uh, artificial architecture intelligence and design. That that one is a core for is under history and theory, uh, which is compulsory. And the, the the other one is spatial design studio, which is essentially imagine it as a studio, but for uh, non architects. So we have uh, in SUTD is actually quite interesting uh, the the there's this fluidity between programs. So I'm teaching in the architecture program, but I'm also teaching in the design AI program. These are not um, architecture students, but uh, they work on projects at different scale. So it's a very new program. So in fact, we're going to start teaching next term for that because it's term seven, uh, our first call of student. And so this is, and they can actually choose to do the creative machine learning as an elective for the Bachelor of Science uh, in Design AI. So um, it started within the architecture school. Right? And the, the hope is that other faculty could, I mean, other students from other faculty could join. It actually, it's quite interesting because if you look at the computer science um, department, often, uh, because they work on fundamentals, often uh, applied AI project uh, is lacking, and and professors actually find that it, students like it. Not that it bring in some sort of a reality, but also uh, an opportunity to think about its role, to think about its uh, potential and, and, and limits. Um, so. Uh, in in that sense, uh, there is a place uh, for an architecture studio uh, or rather spatial design studio providing the needs of even computer science students. This is something I also learned in EPFL where I did my PhD. Uh, when I did my PhD, I was supervising master student from the computer science uh, department, not the architecture students. So it, it was a very something that I picked up that I then somehow assimilated in my own uh, teaching uh, philosophy um, the kind of different perspective uh, on tools um, yeah so yes yeah, started in architecture school um, it was not difficult actually because when I joined SUTD about three and a half years ago I'm supposed to do the, <laughs> the AI part they knew that I, I was working on AI 
and architecture in, in PFL. And so almost immediately, well, in fact, even before my defense, I was hired uh, and I joined the school. Uh, in fact, I did my defense uh, at the end of the, my first semester teaching there. Uh, I flew back to, to Switzerland. And so it was quite easy, no resistance. But the, uh, and they, in fact, they would encourage me to write a book and create a new course uh, and be involved in the formulation of the new design AI program. So uh, from a management, senior management perspective, it, uh, it's very easy. But f- from my experience, at least for the first year or second year when I was teaching it to uh, our second year student, um, there was some resistance uh, that they figured out, they, they, they thought that it's very niche. So imagine teaching this in 2019, end of the year, where nobody talked about JetGPT, no nobody talked about mid-journey. They said, this is niche. Why are we learning niche stuff? You know, this everything should be elective or or not even being taught, right? Um, so you get some feedback, like, you know, I didn't, I, like students say, I, I didn't learn anything. Like, I mean, this is impossible. You didn't learn anything. You basically didn't want to learn anything, right? Um, so anyway, there was some struggle, but uh, I, I'm very, um, well, fortunate that the, the, the school, they understand this natural pushback. Uh, but now it, it got better. Uh, yeah, so my... my Evaluation uh, must also go up. <laughs> and, yeah, I would. I would just like to come back to to one question about that. I, I think what what emerges from what you're saying and I, uh, emerges well from our previous discussions is that uh, the reason why you think it's important to teach architecture students uh, the AI tools is for them to understand how these tools work. Uh, so that they can also uh, understand how to make that work for for themselves. And what you're just saying now, I understand, is that you see that there's a real collaboration between the tech developers of the tools who have uh, the fundamentals and uh, develop the tools just for the tools itself and uh, the architects uh, or the the designers who come in and and find an application for it or a kind of mm-hmm. a, a real world uh, use for such tool uh, is is that the way that you see this progressing in in the education of future architects um and in general, how do we help them? If traditionally one would always say that architecture design courses were uh, lasted a number of years and every year you had more and more complex briefs to resolve as a student, mm-hmm. uh, how do you see that the integration of these AI tools now in teaching, um, how do we, we shift this focus or how will education occur and develop? Right. Um, so to answer the question, I have to answer... Uh, uh, in, for two, you know, two levels of students, the the the, the younger ones and the more mature student, let's say master student. Uh, for in SCTD, for instance, the first years, the first year is for the foundation year. Uh, everyone takes the same uh, uh, modules, and they have no direct relation with architecture. So if We've got just four, well, really five programs. So if your friend who is in the engineering product or engineering system, you'll be studying statistics and probability with them. Uh, you have to do the math and all that, uh, which can be a turnoff uh, for some some students, pre-university students. But in any case, those those are the foundation. And when it comes to tools and you uh, exploration, like I think 
Patrick Schumacher, in one of his talk, he mentioned about or roundtable, I can't remember, uh, about the architect, the designer would play the role to somehow define the potential use of these tools. Just if you recall in the old days, Maya, you know, from the animation world, gradually figure out that it may be relevant for architecture. So we do the kind of intuitive experimentation and searching. But in the end, quite likely, we are not the one developing the full tool. But this is not fully true these days because you actually have uh, students that are uh, graduates who are actually um, very proficient in, in coding. So it's not exactly true, but by and large, by and large, um, the architects, the creative could do that role in the exploration, understanding. And uh, yeah, so who, who would figure out that in, in, the, in, you know, in the 90s that a key framing can be in an animation software can be understood as a state in, in form, right? Nobody would have thought of that. But now we have a different discussion where the neural network is something that a tool that has, has some kind of agency that every time you train it, it's a different animal. And uh, depends how much you train it, 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 it matures and evolves. So again, we, we need, well, I'm trying to do that myself. The, the thing about to conceptualize the, it as a tool for thinking about design first. I think that there's a, there's a question also, how do we teach critical thinking to with these tools because we we shift uh, from from developing maybe a, a design process to judging a, a set of results um, and I think it's a question that we we that we're very interested in general to to understand how uh, how do we still as as uh, educators of create mm. creative uh, <clears throat> design students, how do we teach this idea of critical thinking and the ability for them to judge something over something else when what they're presented with a, is a series of options um, that maybe cut the what we use to describe as a design process. Okay. Um, I, I think there's a, a, sh a shift between the kind of development of something to the result that is, is being shifted with these tools. And um, it, just a, a general question on how you see a uh, critical thinking being developed around that. Uh, yeah. I mean, apart from having the necessary foundational readings, it's also, I mean, teaching design, you can't really teach design, right? I mean, if, no. otherwise no. we wouldn't be doing studios, right? And so <laughs> teaching, and so that's one thing. Uh, how to teach designs? Yeah, yeah, okay. We have some kind of architecture studio culture that, achieve that aim to, to most extent but and then in terms of tools so for my master's students for instance one of them is actually working on theater and she's very into theater stuff and she she wants to incorporate ai but i told her i mean she's just in the in the initial state so imagine i'm not doing ai try to understand the subject matter which is theater and then we think about whether in fact this mm. is relevant for a master's mm. thesis. So that I think you also don't want to force the student to say, okay, you have to use AI. When in fact AI, the definite, you know, AI effects, right? Every time it becomes normal, people say that it's not AI anymore, right? This is the AI effect. Yes. And so <laughs> it, it would be a bit forced to say, 
this is part of your, you know, the rubrics, you know, you have to use this. And therefore, I I prefer a much looser association. I show you the tools that you have. I show you some examples that have been done uh, academically, uh, industry-wise, past your student work, student, uh, student from other universities. And these are the resources you can have. You can ask me. We have private consult as well if you have difficulties. But you decide. Uh, which are the tools that are appropriate and that you're comfortable with. Mm. I mean, some some students may be absolutely comfortable with, um, um, you know, mid-journey or black boxes. Mm. Uh, there's no issue with copyrights. Fine. If, it, if that is your position, then you have to bear the responsibility when a critic asks you that question. Uh, so in, in a way, mm. you also cultivate not just critical thinking, but uh, confidence or determination uh, as as an individual. Mm, truth. Yeah. I wanted as well to, Emmanuel, shift a bit the discussion as well on, on data itself. I mean, we know that what what feeds the AI is, uh, is data today mainly. And I wanted to hear a bit from you, from your perspective as a, from an academic perspective and as well with a background a bit in tech and, and architecture. How do you feel today that architects are considering data? Do, they, do you see them really, that they understand how they can harness which data they need to, to be produced for internal operational data use or external project-specific data? I mean, how is this whole field evolving around that, that topic and that needs mm -hmm. that, uh, of tomorrow? Yes, it's, or the first question might be actually, what do they see as data, right? As potentially trainable data uh, that can be encoded numerically for the deep neural networks, right? So, I mean, the 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 uptake in locally is, is actually quite very very slow, almost not quite there at all. But internationally, for instance, I mean, like Kuhimablo or Zaha the Architects, they you know they play with those tools. And they have archives, right? Uh, because these are very established um, offices. And uh, to them, I mean, they've got lots of training data set. Uh, but so there, there's currently a project and I'm working with uh, Zahai Architects, uh, Patrick Schumacher, is to look at their 3D data set and uh, to develop a custom model that they understand the language, the to train concepts, specific concepts into the model. So if you, I mean, like in, if, let's say the project, Cincinnati uh, project with the urban carpet, you know, this is very specific uh, firm-based languages. It would be nice to have them, right? Uh, rather than, because if you use a standard, I don't know, DALI or mid-journey, They can't understand these very, very specific in-house concepts. So the, the use of data can, in this case, defined by, the, obviously, all the old projects that we have. Uh, but the tools that they plan to develop, then we have to figure out the, what kind of, you know, is it 3D models at what resolution? Uh, what kind of information about materials as well? So the, I think the firm need to be mature enough to even define the taxonomy or the ontology of their archives. Uh, however, most offices will not be able to do that because 
conceptually, they're not there. Technically, mostly not there. So what we see then is um, uh, this popularity in surrogate model, So, which is um, like what we were using in Grasshopper uh, for Rhino 3D. They generate synthetic data set and use that to train a model that could run faster. But it basically gives you the same thing, <clears throat> right? It's trying to train a model that could return, um, you know, let's, you know, environmental analysis, the sum path and all that uh, very quickly instead of waiting for the, the actual simulation. But if you think about it qualitatively, it doesn't really add tremendously much to the plate. It's just faster. So that it made a conceptual shift to say um, it is something else. It is uh, about the, I don't want to use the word style, but the the vocabulary of, of course, some of, I mean, famous officers, they have their vocabulary, but the, the standards, you know, local officers, they don't really have anything. Um, in fact, they don't have much archive, right? They don't even call it archive. They don't have much data. Um, so there's a need to define it before we can discuss uh, whether it's, a, let's say, sufficient or not, sufficient for our purposes, then fine. Uh, but what is quite interesting, a recent conversation um, that I had with um, MVRDV, um, in fact, I'm visiting them next, next week um, to have a discussion in the office. Well, apparently... Uh, almost half a decade ago, they they donated like a few hundreds of their projects to the the head Newit Institute, the the Dutch Museum for Architecture, Culture, and Digital Design, I think. And that is very different. But if you think, I mean, I I I suppose, but when they donated the the projects, the files, digital files, they there wasn't maybe an anticipation of their generative power. So it may not be fair to say, okay, they are seeing their set quite differently. And and they see it in a public way because it's quite one thing to say, I donate my data set to the public realm and everyone everyone can use it or being administered by a public institution um, that can only be seen, visualized on the internet versus being able to be downloaded, being able to... Uh, decompose and train a new model from scratch um, or by transfer learning. That is very different. Uh, but some companies are cool about it. Like, I don't know, Zaha, the organization is quite cool about it. Uh, that they're very upfront about using certain tools and they they don't, don't mind copying from others. And, and so do you see this as a, as a, sh- as a shift that will happen between larger or more evolved practices that will be able uh, to adapt these tools to their own yeah. style, for lack of a better word, but you, you understand what I mean, and yeah. and uh, and more nor, uh, smaller practices or or less uh, developed practices, which will continue to practice in a uh, in a different way, or or how how do you see this becoming a shift between the practices and we see around us that you know people are adapting very differently to the to the this new uh, landscape around us between those that that are trying to understand what's uh, happening and adopting mm-hmm. the tools those that don't haven't never heard about anything so uh, how how do you see uh, 
architects adapt to this and the profession adapt to this in the future? I, I think the small offices, I mean, just now I mentioned um, two examples, international offices, but locally, I had also discussion with like companies like uh, DPA, DP Architects, which is a huge company, and also to other companies. But there is locally at least, um, they are concerned with um, not so much with data, with but in-house tools. So they they have a very different take. Uh, and I'm saying that to to kind of illuminate the issue that. Uh, it's a different situation from for different big companies, big offices. So in, in the local context, like for those companies, is it become a resistance of uh, let's say generative AI models. They because they yes, they have resources, but they may want to spend their resources on more immediately measurable, not too experimental stuff. Uh, I suppose because there are lots of you know people in the board of directors and all that. It's a bit tricky to answer you know question. Uh, whereas you know well known offices, experimental one, that's what they do. That's what they're known for. So they will do it, uh, even though resource is also not you know you know unlimited. But I think for small companies now they are in the right position because they don't. It's fine without vocabulary yet. It's fine without their data set, but. There's so many tools, right? They can move very quickly, and which also raise the issue of manpower. In the in the past, if you have this many architects versus that few architects, it makes a huge difference. But now, if you can do, I mean, you can actually see that in the film industry or the indie game industry. Yeah, you get a few, you know, guys, and they use the right tools. They can produce a game, like from you know from scratch. Uh, just film them. It was impossible previously, um, so that's the, I think that's the advantage. The, the the smaller offices could move quite quickly, without having to think too much of legacy, uh, which maybe soon they will have as it, as the offices mature. But those companies which with with reputation, um, they have to think about it more thoroughly and uh, leverage it. Uh, as almost like something that is really precious, authentic, because they have their model. I mean, they have data set, they can train their own model that they can say it is ours. And that's very rare for small companies. It's almost impossible for small companies. I I think we'll we'll end up with with one last question, maybe looking ahead. What is it that excites you the most about the future of AI uh, in creative industries and architecture in particular? Uh, what potential breakthroughs or advance, advancements do you anticipate in the coming years um, since you've been at the forefront of dealing with it already? I actually have a mixed feeling. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I'm, I don't want to be over-optimistic also, right? I mean, there are certain areas yeah. that I, I have colleagues in the computer science department in, in SUTD, some... Some were saying, I mean, I also have other friends, so I'm not just quoting from them, that, I mean, in the computer science world, it's very, it's very um, competitive, right? They are, play, they are competing at the level of algorithms, right, uh, to, you know, to create new algorithms. And that thing is, is moving very, very fast. Every single day, you've got the new paper, and the, the 
the balance of power is also of resources are so different, right? You have big companies working with university. So um, it, to them, I think is is optimistic in a sense that you know coolings are appearing. Uh, pessimistic in the sense that what more are there to do, and how could they stay competitive? But in our context, it's different. In our context. It's exciting because supposedly uh, democratization of of design, but in an elitist kind of perspective, is you'll be flooded with bad design because is. But of course, then the question is, who are you to say that this is bad, right? Like, there's no kind of a figurehead curator anymore, and so. Uh, this is a very serious issue. This flooding of, what I would say, uncurated uh, materials out there. Um, so that's the pessimistic part, and also the 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 example I mentioned, where students of small company companies would very readily use uh, you know convenient tools without wanting to know more. Or seeing the need to know more, like who cares about about the training set? Who cares about how to fine tune a model? I mean, who cares to even write code, right? If you can just you know do ChatGPT, so there is this potential tendency to, as an ed- educator, like to not learn, <laughs> to not learn the real thing, which maybe is not necessary, but you know, there's no harm to know some you know foundational stuff to build upon in the future, right, uh, as, a, as a basis. Uh, so um, that's that's the slight concern I, I have. So mixed feeling, yes, many cool stuff, maybe going too fast. No, we don't really have time to digest it. Can you imagine in the 90s if they're all, you know, not just Maya appearing, but like lots of software appearing, we're doing lots of cool stuff. We can actually cognitively cope cope with um, what's happening, and we I I think I mentioned somewhere somewhere about always being a toddler, never being able to mature to the point to make a judgment because you're just a bit reactionary, right? Something came out, you came out, and you just want to play with it, and then next, almost kind of a attention deficiency <laughs> in a way. Uh, which is the dilemma, but the, the area that I'm working right now, um, I think is very promising, uh, which is um, newer regions feel. Uh, it is this, um, it's, I, I find it amazing uh, in the sense that it is, I mean, the computer science will see it more like an advanced um, photogrammetry in a way, is to reconstruct, but as a, from a design perspective, it's extremely powerful. Uh, because you can actually, it's a different way of thinking about geometry, different way of thinking about um, modeling digitally. And it's fascinating. And it's moving fast enough, but also slow enough. Fast enough to see new things, slow enough that you're not bombarded with uh, commercial ready. I mean, of course, there are some companies doing it, but not as many as text to image. Text to 3D is still kind of a bit. Uh, way less mature um, and and it, it, the way as architects or spatial designer we, we look at 
3D models very differently. Right. For the computer science, I mean, in terms of images, okay, fine. They're just images. But as a 3D model, we, we want to know what's in there, what, what are the representation, what can be changed, how do we edit it, how do we control it. Uh, so I'm excited with that. <laughs> that particular area, which is very relevant architecture. It's fascinating, I think, because we've also seen over the course of these last month as how this technology came up at, at first as maybe something uh, that, that was uh, uh, exciting, but also scary in terms of how it would take over your role and then slowly adapting to work with it and, and seeing the potential of using it in our creative process as well. And this uh, this impression of being part of uh, this ongoing development is, is really... Uh, uh, a great time to to be living through while of course also asking ourselves the right questions as as I think we we just did in this talk I think that your insights are really uh fascinating um both in terms of it being applied in your in your teaching and your your day-to-day -day, uh, um interaction with students using these and also with all the the kind of larger questions you ask about it and, and the future of it. I think it would be great to, to probably talk again in, in about a six month or a year's time to see mm -hmm. how we, we've all evolved and what mm -hmm. what new came, uh, how we've maybe shifted some of our our thinking or, or uh, confirmed others. Yeah, uh, but, it'll be uh, we, we, we really wanted to thank you for your, your time and your, your fascinating insights. It was a pleasure to talk with you and to exchange. Absolutely. Thank you very much. Thanks for inviting me. We greatly appreciate you tuning into our podcast. If you have any suggestions for future guests or topics you'd like us to explore, we would love to hear from you. You can find our contact information in the show notes or on our website. Thank you again for being part of our podcast community. Stay tuned for more engaging discussions captivating stories and valuable insights.